0: Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland and I am very pleased to be joined today by Jeff Baker, Associate Clinical Professor of Law at Pepperdine Caruso Law School, also the Director of Legal Clinics and the Director of the Community Justice Clinic. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time today.
1: Steve, thanks so much. I'm happy to be here.
0: Um, I asked you to come in to talk about a very specific set of circumstances that we all hope doesn't get repeated ever in our lifetimes. But before we jump into those questions of how new laws are impacting the nonprofit sector, could I ask you to just talk a little bit about uh, your work at Pepperdine Caruso, your role in the clinic, and and how you serve the nonprofit community now?
1: Sure. Happy to. Uh- in in legal education, legal clinics are teaching clinics. Uh, it's like a law school. Uh, it's like a law firm inside the law school, and we have several clinics uh, throughout the law school. I'm sort of like the managing partner. All the other clinics have professors who are sort of like my law partners, and then students are our associates. Uh, so these are upper-level students who are taking our clinics as classes uh, to serve real clients out in the world. I have the uh, great gift of being able to be a teacher and a lawyer and to um, have a have a school that supports this uh, richly and, and puts us into to a position of being able to help uh, a lot of clients along the way as we teach our law students how to practice law. Uh, the clinic that I run myself is called the Community Justice Clinic and we are Essentially, general counsel for nonprofits, NGOs, community organizations, uh, religious communities who are doing social justice, uh, human rights, economic development work uh, among ma- marginalized and vulnerable communities, um, primarily in Los Angeles and Southern California, uh, but also throughout the country. And probably about a third or uh, fourth of our clients are either international NGOs or are working abroad um, on in several different uh, countries. So we have a, we have a pretty broad uh, reach. We have a, a law practice that includes really three essential um, scopes of practice. One is corporate governance. Uh, that is sort of the stuff we're talking about today. Probably uh, that's incorporation, tax exemption, compliance, uh, building nonprofits that are sustainable and compliant uh, so that they can serve their missions in the world. Uh, our second component is transactional and just legal problem solving. Uh, We help people with policies, with intellectual property, with contracts and deals. Uh, and helping people advance their work uh, as they reach out and build partnerships in their communities. And then the third branch is legal research and policy advocacy on the work that our clients do. So we have uh, clients who are at work around human trafficking, homelessness, environmental causes, and we do legal research and advocacy work to advance their their work in the world. Uh, And it's just a privilege because we get to work with nonprofits at every stage uh, and almost every size. I serve on the board of several nonprofits as well uh, and serve as um, general counsel uh, as well for the Episcopal Diocese of Los Angeles, which is a pretty big organization itself. So we have, um, we, have a, we have a big spread and have watched a lot of nonprofits uh, enter into this season of disruption and confusion and questions and uh, have tried uh, our best to work with them to try to help them navigate uh, the situation that we are facing right now.
0: So let's set that stage for a moment because we're recording this on April 21st, 2020 um, at that particular moment in the coronavirus um arc. And we, of course, don't know where this arc is going. And I look forward to listening to this months and months from now and having an understanding of where we were. Um, But right now, all we know is that the impact across the economy has been extremely strong in many, many areas. Uh, And the federal government has been called upon to react in a way that it has just not been called upon to react in the past. And we're all trying to learn what that means. So um, I read a and shared a medium post by a colleague of yours who um, helped try to explain this very early on um, and then asked, you know, let's have a a more in-depth conversation about that federal response and how it impacts the charitable community. So with that moment said, we are just at this point where two of the largest programs that um, the federal government has Uh, enacted to try to address this crisis economically, the uh, Economic Injury Disaster Loan and the Paycheck Protection Program um, have sort of run out of money in first round, and we've learned some things. So knowing that, uh, could you talk a little bit about what you know about eligibility for those two programs under the current law before we get into what kind of money might have been available and how? um, But I think that was confusing for many, many charitable organizations. What am I eligible to apply for? When should I have applied for it? How do I apply for it? Can you kind of walk us through that a little?
1: Sure. And I think it's important to remember that one of these programs, uh, and both of them have existed in some form before. And what you said, just, just to build a little bit more context, I think it's very important because this is, this is nearly unprecedented and the, the scope of it is unprecedented. I, I think it is fair to say that not since uh, World War II and the depression before it have we faced anything uh, that has the global scope that we're under you know that right now and, and and what we're experiencing and the economic impact i mean i i can't overstate that i think this is capital h history we're living through and the government um and private enterprise and and, and our nonprofit sector are all scrambling to do it um and i and i say that because the government um the federal government stood these programs up extraordinarily quickly um, and deployed them extraordinarily quickly. And, and for that, I, I give some credit. I mean, there, there will always be folks who will say, you know, it could have been faster. Uh, it shouldn't have come at all. But I think, um, I think facing an unprecedented situation means that the government did move pretty quickly. Now, I say all that to say this. In order to do it quickly, they built on some existing programs and, and you've already mentioned them, but I, and, and I want to take them in this order because I think, uh, this will help clarify it. There are really two programs that we're talking about. And the first one is the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, which is not new. Uh, it is, however, uh, part of the typical res- response we see during a natural disaster. Uh, our clinics and in, in, in my life, I'm, I'm from the South, I live through Katrina, now live in California, live through wildfires, and now this, we've gotten really familiar with how this typically works. Um, and typically, and this is actually going to answer your question now, um, eligibility for EIDL, Economic Injury Disaster Loans, uh, are for people, for small businesses, including nonprofits, who are in a nat- in a disaster in a declared disaster? I almost said natural disaster. I suppose this is a natural disaster. <laughs> uh, almost almost every jurisdiction, and I think by now every jurisdiction is under a nationwide declared disaster uh, uh, in FEMA terms, which is important—a presidentially declared disaster. It's never we've never had one uh, that's. Spans the whole nation, but what that does is trigger FEMA uh, and these SBA small business administration loans for people to get underway. And what they what they typically have to do, uh, and I won't go through the weeds of this too much, but typically people have to apply for FEMA relief. They get they get. referred to the SBA. The SBA considers the economic impact that someone has had due to the disaster. They have to have some fees, they have to have some credit checks, they have to have oftentimes collateral, and then uh, they can get a loan to help them bridge whatever the, e- the quote-unquote economic injury was from the disaster. Now, what is different here is like the guardrails are gone. Uh, everybody has the ability to apply for it if, if you're a small business within the parameters, including a nonprofit. Um, But no fees, no credit checks, no collateral. Um, And they are up to, I I think they're up to about $2 million or so that that people can get. But it's debt, um, except for a, a, a grant program, which I'll append in just a minute. But typically, the EIDL loans, people have to go through basically a lending process to be approved. Here, largely, at least according to the paper, they don't have to. Uh, if you can demonstrate that you had an economic injury, uh, a downturn in business and revenue, then you can get these loans for operating costs. That's what the statute says, and I want to I want to I want to flag that because it'll come up later. Right. It's for operating cost. Uh, now the EIDL also includes the a ten thousand dollar advance, which actually functions as a grant. And people can uh, apply for that. Nonprofits and small businesses can apply for that theoretically, but the volume has been so high. I've, I've heard folks having hit or miss with this. Um, theoretically, have $10,000 hit one's bank account within three or four days of of applying through the SBA or through a lender. Um, let,
0: me, let me interrupt so, you there for just sure. a moment on that part, because that was the early communication that right. was sent out to many folks saying, um, the CARES Act is kind of the, the kickoff of all of this, which is uh, Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act. So CARES is our um, acronym to work with here. Um, very specifically says in there, up to $10,000 in advance, three-day turnaround uh, on the application. You're gonna get that decision about a $10,000, up to $10,000 advance payment within three business days of this application because this is an emergency and we're gonna make that happen. So the bill says one thing, One wonders how much the folks that wrote the bill were actually in conversation with the SBA who had to administer the thing, uh, because here we are now 21 something days later. Most people maybe are seeing something now, but there was nothing in three days or a week or 10 days after those initial applications for that that came out, which I think is part of the confusion I wanted to talk a little bit about here is the law says one thing, the practical application of it has been revised one, because they couldn't make a three-day turnaround, but two, somewhere along the line, the SBA decided that up to $10,000 meant $1,000 per employee active on January 31st of 2020 um, up to $10,000. So if you had 10 people working for you, you get $10,000 advance kind of thing, which is not, of course, how many of us read it, but that's what the SBA has decided to do. So let me just kind of ask you to explore a little bit about what you may know of that particular advance slash grant, which again, as long as you're using it for the eligible purposes, the idea is that's going to be a grant that you won't have to pay that portion of it back if you use it for those reasons. But getting it and understanding what you were getting may have been communicated one way 21 days ago and a very different way today.
1: Oh, sure. And this is, and by the way, I, I, I will try to explain, but not be a, an apologist for any of this because uh, it, Part of it is just a lived experience of having to deal with a rapidly evolving bureaucracy, uh, and I mean that in technical and complimentary terms—not <laughs> not, not just coming down on bureaucrats, but yeah. but it, it is it is a heavy lift, right? And FEMA and the SBA deal with this all the time, except they're usually having to pop up wherever a disaster happens. Uh, in this case, they're popping up everywhere and having to deal with just massive volume. Now, uh, this also is the difference between a statute and its regulations, right? So Congress passes a statute, says up to 10, but buried buried in there, uh, and this is always going to be true. It's not a criticism. Uh, there is some deference to the administrative agency, in this case, the SBA, uh, part of the Treasury Department, to... to um, to administer those things uh, and to make sure that they get moving, right, and uh, and so it is. Um, there are there are rules within the SBA that govern this during a disaster, um, and those rules are not necessarily unless they're explicitly removed by statute, they they still stand, right? So, uh, so I think probably what we're seeing is the SBA using its administrative and regulatory power to bring to bear congressional intent within its own. Um, within its own uh you know r- ambit of of being able to 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 regulate and operationalize uh, a, a really really huge program, and to get money out as soon as it can. So I mean, what you just said is absolutely true. I mean, people did not. I mean, and I mean, it's three or four days, not from the passage of the statute, just three or four days from the from when when one is supposed to have applied. Um, but then uh, even then, it's hard to to go. And you know, sometimes people um, have trouble gathering the, the kind of documents that folks want to see. And sometimes that depends on the caseworker or the banker or the line employee who does the first or second review of something to get it through and out the door through quality control because to their credit they do they they are stewards of public money and so they're trying to make sure that that it's done properly um, with all benevolent assumptions right. but well, but, if, it, but it, if, it does it does bind up for sure yeah
0: well let me uh, again i think the the advance portion of this uh, the application process was actually remarkably simple um, did not ask for a whole lot of documentation up front and it really is sort of a uh, determiner about applying for the rest of the money that you allude to is, you know, sure. get us some very basic information about your operation, including number of people employed and your avid, you know, th- these kinds of things. But it's not putting together a tremendous amount of very difficult paperwork in my experience. Um, I've, I've filled out a few of these for some nonprofit clients, it's fairly quick. But the expectation being that if you are approved for some portion of the advance, you will then be invited to finish a more complicated um, uh, application for a loan that will you know, be more than just the advance portion, that will be more than the grant. Um, I have seen some folks now get um, uh, an idle advance, this uh, Economic Injury Disaster Loan advance. Um, but so far, haven't seen anybody actually get an application for the next stage of the thing, because I think we're still trying to work through just the advances getting dealt with, let alone the applications for the rest of the money.
1: And, you know, it's interesting because I've seen it go the other way too. I've seen some people apply directly for the big loan and then go back for the advance. But so, so it's just, it is true. And I'll don't have to rehash that too much, except to validate that there are two applications and one of them is much heavier because it's of much more money. And the other is theoretically shorter in order to, uh, you know, accelerate money into the system. Um, I, I just want to note I have been shocked at and delighted I think uh, about how simple or deceptively simple these applications are yeah. uh, and for the for the payroll protection paycheck protection, which we'll talk about in a minute um, Honestly, it's it, it's just so short. Um, and I think then banks have to reckon with what to do with that, because they're not used to giving out massive amount of money uh, without having a lot more documentation and security. Of course, it's backed by the government in this case, so they're more willing to do it. But but it has been um it seems easy, uh, which I think is one of our takeaways here, uh, but it actually takes a, a much heavier lift in order to get it over uh, all of the hurdles and, and successfully uh, close any any of these deals for sure
0: yeah, and I think again, I'm trying to give some credit where credit is due um, at least the initial application information in both of these programs from the smaller business and again the the definition under PPP of a small business you know five hundred employees or under, and I think there's some confusion about um, how those employees are counted, which is where we're seeing some media stories now about large corporations that have um, franchises or subsidiaries or other you know structures where those things are under 500 employees. And then they apply for money, even though the whole large enterprise is bigger than 500 people. But at the first cut, kind of saying PPP, 500 people, uh, I don't remember if the idle application was the same cutoff for what a small business is, or if the, or if, if small even counts for idle. Do you happen to know?
1: Um, it, I, I don't think it does, it, and it has a different category because it's just trying to help businesses in that moment uh, survive the the downturn for whatever the disaster is. So I, I think I you'll have to you, you caught me a little bit unawares there. I'll, I'm going to look yeah. at, back at my some of my own memo on idle, um, but but I think it's. Um, I think it's important to sort of, uh, and maybe this is where you're going, to sort of t- to close out, if we can, conversation about the idle and the economic injury loan and move on to payroll protection loan because um, I don't want to confuse them because they yeah. are really different animals.
0: Right. So I think fine to acknowledge that that's there. Um, the one thing that I want to get to when we've talked about both of these programs a little bit is um, for any charities out there that we're not sure, should I apply for this thing? And I had a, some pushback from some folks I work with going, I don't think that's for me. And and me kind of pushing them going, yeah, I really think it is. But it it seemed like um a a thing that most nonprofit organizations most charities haven't looked at when you go to an SBA site and say you know here's this relief package um getting them convinced like you are qualified as an economic uh, injured organization in this area as long as its impact and ppp is a different thing but under idle everybody is qualified if you're under 500 people or whatever the number no, is and you're and kind of is. there
1: yeah. And by the way, it is 500 uh, employees a- okay. and, and, and uh, forgive me for interrupting, but I, but I think that's a legitimately hard question um, because it's debt too, right? Uh, and sometimes uh, in a, in a regular disaster, it's, it's a heavier lift and people are not always willing to go into more debt and, and it's not, uh, it's not forgivable. The first $10,000 can be forgivable as a grant, but everything else ends up, I mean, it's, it's relatively cheap money. It's not going to be, right. I think, for nonprofits above two percent, typically, um, and, and it can it can spin out for a pretty long time. Uh, but but that's I think that's a I think that's a fair question. And in a regular disaster, it wouldn't be as available as it is right now. Um, and I think there's a there's a there's a really interesting discussion uh, that I've walked through with a few clients uh, around the, the differences and and which one would be m- more advantageous: the economic injury SBA disaster loan uh, or payroll protection.
0: Yeah. And I think that's good to talk about that. um, You're not supposed to have, you know, both of these things simultaneously. So if you get the $10,000 advance from idle and you accept that you you may turn down the rest of the loan. That's allowed. And that $10,000 can be forgiven if you're using it for these purposes. And you don't have any debt. You just got the $10,000 or up to $10,000, depending on how many employees you have. Um, so that's an option for some, or at least it was an option. We're still trying to figure out how many applications came in, how many have been processed, is there still money? And we'll want to look at, is there going to be more money in that program in a minute? But let's I agreed. Let's set down idle for a moment and look at the larger program of the two that is intended um, to, I think, think more about things. And that's this uh, paycheck protection program. And if you can kind of lead into what you're hearing or seeing about that bigger program so far.
1: Sure, and it is like IDLE was um, a, a an expansion of the existing what's called 7a small business loan. So once again, Congress was using an existing program, but just opening up the floodgates and using that structure that already existed in order to try to accelerate this money out into the marketplace. And um, you know, I think the first um, the first uh, appropriation was 400. Thirty-something billion dollars for payroll protection, and the idea is that people can, uh, people, nonprofit, small businesses uh, under five hundred people uh, can apply uh, to. to uh, There are, there are a few categories, but the largest category is payroll protection to get a loan based on its employees, and the theory is that. Uh, employers won't lay off people and won't reduce their compensation more than 25% to try to make it through to the other side. It's just a few weeks long uh, and people are uh, theoretically supposed to apply uh, through their own lenders, which is going to be part of the bottleneck that we've seen. Uh, going through banks that participate. And the banks themselves uh, have had to figure out how to navigate this as well. So, so the idea is someone applies, they say, this is how many employees I have, this is how much we pay them uh, based on our history, this is how many people we have now, uh, times a formula times 2.5 ends up the loan amount. And then you make an application for that loan with all the documentation that you can muster. Um, and, and then wait uh, and see. And the idea is that you get uh, a big amount of money in your bank, uh, in order to use it for payroll protection to pay your employees plus their benefits, all their overall compensation, um, with a few other categories. And if one does it and accounts for it properly and uses it in the in the position where it's supposed to be, then it ought to be, according to the statute, forgivable. Right. That's effectively converting it into a grant. Now, what where we to your question? Where what have we seen on the ground? We've seen a lot of people apply. I have seen, in my experience so far, very few people get it, right. um, and uh, before the money ran out, and and the the first big bump. I mean, and once again, credit where it's due. Everyone was trying to do this in the span of just about a week, um, and the way that this functions is that the SBA uh, underwrites and backs up these loans with private lenders. So private banks have to agree to be a part of the program and then decide which of their customers they're going to serve. Uh, Very famously, in the very first day, Bank of America was getting a whole lot of heat because it said it was only going to serve customers who had existing debt products with them. And a lot of people had bank accounts, but no debt. They were long-term customers, but didn't have a loan with them. And uh, Bank of America relented the next day um, and let people go, But, but because there was a um because there were bottlenecks at the at the banks and because people had to get their stuff together, the money just went really really quickly and you know theoretically it was uh, in most cases we thought it was supposed to be first come first serve uh, I think we know pretty well that that's not how it happened uh and there were just the natural advantages of being big fish, some big fishes with big banking relationships were able to to get in and cash out very quickly, while a lot of other folks and smaller scale folks were scrambling to get their stuff in and trying to satisfy the banks before the banks would send it onto the SBA. And I know several clients who successfully identified their bank, worked with their bank, uh, took a few days to make sure their paperwork was together, got it through the bank onto the SBA, and now uh, is just in the queue uh, for the next appropriation, which might come As quickly as tonight or tomorrow. I shouldn't say the money is going to come by tonight or tomorrow, but the law might pass by tonight or tomorrow so that there's more money in the in the bucket.
0: So I think that's a really important point to think about in terms of the amount of energy and time of where a nonprofit organization might focus in this crisis moment of what economic decisions can we make that are the best for preserving our mission? Because an opportunity here, as ugly as this sounds, is to lay off all of your, you know, as many staff as you can, let them go to the uh, enhanced unemployment benefits, which is, you know, better than it used to be, if not good. But at least part of this package was also increasing the amount of unemployment that an organization might get. And then you aren't putting out that payroll. That you may get reimbursed for if you got one of these loans. But here's where the mixed messages, I think, was a little bit of a challenge of saying, we're going to have. Um, this $350 billion in the first round or whatever the number was, I think 350 in the first round, um, that's available to, um, help offset those payroll costs in the coming two and a half months so that you don't have to lay people off. And many charities are like, okay, we don't want to lay people off. we got work to do. There's a lot there. So absolutely. We want to apply without some understanding of what does it mean to be first come first served because you know one interpretation of that is you know i i'm ready with my application but the other is that's when a bank turns it into the sba is the first come first serve and which bank you can get to that might process your application if you don't already bank at an sba lender Um, and how the banks decide to prioritize internally, as you pointed out with Bank of America and certainly others, not just them, that made some decisions like, wow, if we have way more applications than we can possibly process, How do we decide which ones to go? Sure, you could try to find some kind of first come, first serve mentality within the bank itself, but it's also possible for them to say, we want to prioritize our customers first, whether they're a debt customer or any other kind of customer, and then go to the outside folks that don't have accounts with us. Because after all, so many people did not bank at SBA um, uh, lenders before, which I think is part of where this confusion came up of uh, this program was designed to go through the sba 7a program if you weren't an sba lender you could apply to become one but of course that process takes whatever that process takes and people that were already there are in that first come first serve space so that's i think where the smaller charities had to kind of take a step back and go how much time and energy do we put into this application that maybe we don't get and more importantly from my perspective is it economically smarter to think about laying some people off right now than incurring those payroll costs on the chance that someday maybe we'll get some relief, but maybe we don't. And that's got to be something that's really tricky for many organizations to think about. Have you been having any of those conversations yet?
1: Yes. Um, And there are are two sort of worker centric points that I'll make about that for anybody who's thinking about it and, and but honestly like you say as good stewards of our organizations this ends up being a just gut-wrenching business decision uh, about the you know the fiduciary life of the organization but for workers one may lay them off and hope that they are fine with unemployment but and I mean this you know this depends on an employer's benefit package but very likely that leaves them without insurance, uh, or or insurance costs that are going to be you know exorbitant. And yeah. so it's not just a one to one. I'm going to put you on unemployment and hire you back. And that goes to my second point too. If someone if someone goes through this process and lays people off, which as you say is a valid, rational, reasonable economic decision, very likely. I mean, if, if this thing turns into a legitimate hardcore recession, which it almost certainly will over the next many months, it's going to be hard to just hire folks back, right? So the theory of the payroll protection loan is that you have enough not to pay to, you can still pay their insurance, still pay their benefits, still keep people on the, on the, on the payroll, use that as a grant in order to uh, hold on to your employees, keep them employed so that when you come out the other side, they still have jobs. Because I think once we lay people off, it's, it's, it's very unlikely that those same jobs are just going to reappear, you know, when it's when shelter in places is over. Right. Um, so, so I think those are two big importance. Now, I, I, I had a discussion with an organization who had come to an early agreement the week before the law passed, who had taken a hard look at their books had talked to everybody on staff and had agreed to, and everyone was on board to take a 50% pay cut in order to just try to string out for three months without going under, mm-hmm. in the hopes that things would return, and we had this very conversation, and and the executive director decided to reduce people's uh, compensation by twenty five percent instead of fifty percent, and twenty five percent is the standard in the statute, right? It, you can one may reduce employees' compensation by twenty five percent and still have it forgiven at the full amount, but not more. Um, and she decided to, as she and I were talking about, wait for the cavalry to come, yeah, you know, to take to 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 put herself in a bind in six weeks instead of three months, waiting and hoping and praying that this money. Shows up, and so, but but it was a tough business decision, right? Uh, and everybody was on board, and so that was the that was the course of action that she chose. And, and in this case, still hasn't gotten any money yet, and that was going on, you know, three weeks ago when she had to make this decision, and now is still in the queue. Uh, and you know, is is past the bank at the SBA now waiting for the next trench? And and if the money comes, then that is going to be a great story. Uh, if it doesn't come, it's going to have been a very tough bet. Um, I, I had a conversation just yesterday uh, with a with a nonprofit who was trying to decide about whether to to challenge and reapply somewhere else. Uh, for the difference of $9,000. Uh, their total loan that they were seeking was 39. They had some weird uh, employment thing around uh, ministerial uh, housing or, or something like that mm. with their, with their uh, religious organization and had to make the decision about trying to find a new bank, get out of line, get back in line for the difference of $9,000 and i just said I, I think that's a business decision but probably not uh and so i think they stuck with it so you know if what understanding the landscape and i think this is the takeaway and i i think this might be where where we need to to go with this is to say it's really really important to understand what the parameters and the risks are um and and have a very good accounting of one's own future um uh, books um, yeah. and, and to be able to make that with an informed decision, but not in a in a in a panicked way, and not in a way that. Um stakes all of one's chips on this one program.
0: Again, depending on the amount of injury that that organization is suffering, because I do want to point out that we, you talked about the, the one of the differences in the PPP application, even the little short form one versus Idle is you do need to self-certify that you are economically impacted here. Um, Idle just says everybody is. We're we're all impacted here. So if you want to apply for your ten thousand dollars, you can apply. But that other one says you need to be able to tell me ahead of time that whatever's happening here is negatively impacting your organization. Some of the clients that I'm working with are actually growing right now. Basic food service organizations, these kinds of things where donations are up, their staff needs are up, all the rest, but they are not actually negatively financially impacted. Their mission imperatives are just crushing them. I mean, it's huge but but they don't really apply for that loan in that same way saying I'm having you know a uh, economic impact be- because of the coronavirus crisis so you do need to be able to read that part of the application and say right this is reserved for people who are going to see some uh, reduction in revenue of some kind because of this crisis which is a lot of folks but it isn't everybody
1: I uh, th- that's that's right um, and I think that you know it, it you don't have to document that too much you have you do have to check a box under penalty of perjury that's that that says so it's not just money on the ground um but i but i do I do think that can manifest itself in a lot of ways. Sure. Right? Um, Even so, just
0: reduced donations coming through because right. everybody else that normally gives to you is hitting the same economic impact. I think that's a reasonable um, defense, but I do think that every charity has to really look at themselves and be ready to check that box affirmatively, knowing you know what's going on and, and what's happening to them. And I have had a couple of clients that are like, nope, right. that isn't us. And I'm like, okay, good. You looked, you saw, you're making a decision based on what the application says. That's all good, but um, I, th- I agree. It's a fairly broad brush of. You tell us that there's an economic impact. We will allow that process to go through without a whole lot more scrutiny.
1: That, that's right, and you know, uh, to, just to validate your point, uh, it, it is not for everyone, and I think everybody needs to make a, a really close decision about it. And um, if if you really don't need it, um, then there's a little bit of goodwill in not trying to get it. I mean, it's a, it, it is a. It is a limited bucket of money, even if Congress appropriates more today or tomorrow so right. uh, so I th- so I think that's right
0: well let's let's talk about that potential of what may now happen because uh, as we're having this conversation, the Congress is trying to decide about an interim measure that really just adds more money to the existing programs it doesn't um, as as I understand it today, and you know we haven't seen all of this yet, but it doesn't make any substantial changes to these things. It's just getting more money into the pipeline so that some of those folks that have already applied might have a shot at getting those things in. Presumably, of course, people that have already in that first come first serve line gotten something into the SBA would be the first ones to be considered for more money if that comes up. But that doesn't mean that it isn't possible to now still submit an application knowing what you know now and and hope and try to get in queue again.
1: Yes, it's still alive, uh, and I and I think I think we'll see. Uh, I almost certainly we're going to see more money in the program today uh, or this week at least in the next few days, and and that's going to you know it, it will probably go quickly. I mean, there are a lot of people in the queue, uh, but but I I think we see. I mean, it's always risky to say this, but I I think we see a political will in Congress uh, to spend. Deeply on this, Matt. Now, maybe there, there, are all there are people who are going to say uh, that it's not enough, uh, and that we need some New Deal level, uh, FDR, you know, you know, magnitude here, where we're going to create different kinds of things to stave off some some real catastrophe. But but for now, uh, we're we're doling it out. And I I am looking right now. Um, uh, you you and I were discussing this before we got uh, on on the show together. Um, that we're trying to confirm what these numbers are, but NPR says uh, that the bill uh, negotiated, not yet passed, but but tentatively agreed to by Congress, has 322 billion uh, for the payroll protect. Paycheck Protection Program, uh, and then another $60 billion uh, for the Economic Injury Disaster Loans, um, and then some more for hospitals and testing. Um, so, you know, I think there's still money out there, and if people are, are still inclined to seek it, uh, I don't see any reason why they shouldn't. But I think, I think going to what we've talked about already is, is to just temper expectations and don't expect it to be, um, you know, uh, an absolute
0: lifeboat. Right. And I think that recognizing um, that we're we're looking at potential refinements in any CARES too. So if CARES, the um, first bill, uh, set up some infrastructure for how to do this, there are those of us out there going, hey, um, some things that got set up the first time didn't really work very well for the charitable sector. We think you ought to take these into account. There is very potentially not just this bill to do a little bit more money uh, or not little. It's a lot of money. Uh, to do a lot more money into the existing programs, but also uh, to say after that money is also exhausted, what's the next thing? Um, Is it more loans or more grants or is it something else? Um, Are there national conversations? Are there places that people can learn how they can influence what Congress and the federal government in general should be considering as they think about a subsequent piece of legislation that may be different from this one?
1: Maybe I'm maybe I'm t- t- too cynical. I, I think that the political bandwidth um, is is limited in that regard. I mean we we okay. can take we can take a lot of lessons from other countries that have uh, reacted differently, but we have a different political and economic um, sort of window about what's what's realistic. Um, so, so I hesitate to say, it, but I, but I do think um, that I mean, and this is just citizenship. One hundred and one. Uh, write your member of Congress. Right. I mean, I, I think, yeah. I think, I think to use or uh, to use whatever statewide associations of nonprofits or whatever industry one is in uh, to try to reach out and to try to shape that. If there are different ideas, I, I tend to think that our current politics are not going to uh, render us m- much in the way of direct grant funding. Uh, I don't think that that's probably going to happen Uh, to nonprofits and to small businesses. I think they will typically be bank-based loan programs. I think that's probably what we're going to see. Um, But that's not to say that there can't be different approaches. I mean, I I saw some, this was not nonprofits, but I I saw some uh, small business folks I think I think this particular group was in Florida, was complaining about how some of the big corporations that are structured through franchises or subsidiaries, who were able to access this you know ton of money, even though they appear to be huge corporations, uh, th- these small business folks were talking about r- uh, proposing and arguing for ratcheting down the definition of small business to something like 200 and f- uh, 250 and fewer. Mm. Uh, or 50 or fewer or really oh, mom wow. and pop sized folks which you know um a lot of nonprofits a lot of local nonprofits will would probably still be eligible but honestly i really hesitate to say what this president and this senate and this house um would do uh, in really creative ways just because of our current um you know sort of polarized uh, days although congress has moved uh at, at least compared to recent history um really quickly on this stuff because the economic uh, injuries are are so profound but uh, so so forgive me for not being able to to point toward p- specific ideas or 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 industries that i think are making these arguments because i think it's it's probably too early to tell but i think that if we have a second wave of the pandemic if we have to shut down again in the fall or the spring if we have this sort of uh, rising and ebbing uh, crisis before we have some scientific breakthrough um, that we'll continue to see these kinds of programs rolling out.
0: Yeah. And I think that's one of the challenging things for charities to think about their way to ride out not just this particular way, because everything was really structured on that two and a half month, like by then we'll know something. We're either right. going to be opening up or we're going to need to do another round of something or whatever, but it's keep people employed for this, you know, upcoming roughly 10 weeks um, so that we can figure out what's going to happen next. And we're, and, and I think that's, a good idea, but it is really difficult to keep making large scale impactful decisions in one and two week chunks.
1: <laughs> yeah, so that, that's absolutely right. And, and let me just say, I, I think that's exactly right, because the conversations even that we were having, uh, and I was having with my, with my clients, uh, thoughtfully was, you know. This goes through the end of June, and then you'll probably be okay. I, I just told you the example of the executive director who was trying to string it out for three three months, and then the hopes that things would come back. Um, so, I mean, now I'm out of my lane, perhaps giving business consultation and strategic <laughs> thinking instead of instead of legal advice, but. Um, by the way, I have not given any legal advice on this podcast yet, <laughs> so, and I'm good, not. Good so I have to make our disclaimers I have out there. A good lawyer about that. I have not given any legal advice. Uh, uh, only only things I think about. Um, but it is um, it, it becomes a business and a strategic decision. And one thing I think has to be true is that no no entity, no nonprofit, no small business, no school, no church, no anybody ought to stake their future. On federal government programs. Uh, And that's not a critique of the federal government. It's just it it is going to be uncertain. Uh, And and I I fully expect that states uh, in their various ways and sovereignties will do different things locally as best they can. I think the federal government will do increasingly more as this spins out over months but I think nonprofits have to start thinking about other revenue streams or or refining their models or yeah. streamlining uh, all of the horrible corporate things that we end up having to do when we get pushed off of our mission uh, because to to protect the mission is paramount um, and uh, sometimes we have to make those hard decisions.
0: Right, and as difficult as it is to think about, that might mean losing staff or closing entire program branches or locations or something like that. Uh, it is uh, a very difficult thing to try to plan for, how do we react in the next month or six weeks or 10 weeks or whatever, when the probably the impact of what we're going through is going to be much larger than that. And it's just so hard for everyone to um, have accurate information to plan on. So I'm, I'm glad that you were able to take some time today to at least talk through sort of what we know about the federal response today, I I think I can also suggest the uh, National Council of Nonprofits at uh, councilofnonprofits.org has got a pretty good list of some additional resources for charities to look at, including what they know about Federal relief and, and legislation, but I think it's really been helpful for me to be able to talk this through with you to help understand a little bit more about kind of where the ground lays now. So um, we're we're just about out of time. So as we're wrapping up, um, I'm wondering if there are resources you want to point to or things from uh, your own clinic that you know you'd like people to be aware of as they're considering their next steps. Um,
1: you, you know, this is just uh grossly self-promotional but um if you if if people want to google um our legal clinic the pepperdine caruso school of law community justice clinic we have a page set up i'm not even saying it's better than anyone else's but we have a a list of uh, resources for nonprofit partners uh it's it's a little bit california centric but not necessarily it's got some lists uh and it's it's Essentially, a curated clearinghouse of the kind of pages that you were talking about: national conference of National Council of Nonprofits, uh, California um, unemployment links, uh, California State Treasurer Treasury. But a lot of folks do that. I have a memo there that I uh, wrote, um, which was describing the basic outlines of this of these two of these programs. Uh, The basic outlines aren't changed yet. Uh, We just, but I put a lawyerly sentence in there that said. Essentially, your mileage may vary uh, based on how this is rolled out into the real world. and, uh, but, I, but I still think it holds up. And so if, if folks want to look at our website, uh, I have a memo that, that my students and I drafted just as an orientation for our clients. But, um, but I, I would also um, happily defer to all the resources that you're going to probably post on your site and, and point people to.
0: And I'll put a link to the Pepperdine Caruso School of Law resources from those clinics in the show notes so that uh, people listening can um, look at the podcatcher, get to there, check the web. Um, but I, I think it's so helpful to have a more more in-depth conversation. Now, knowing that there's a great deal of uncertainty still in what's going to be happening, but understanding where these programs are today, super helpful. So uh, Jeff Baker, Associate Clinical Professor of Law, Pepperdine Caruso School of Law. Thank you so much for your time today. Steve, thank you. It's been a pleasure.